2: Visit livenation.com slash concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.
3: Welcome to another edition of the Huddle & Flow podcast. I'm Steve Weich with my guy, Jim Trotter. And uh, Jim, you know, it's this is one of these episodes where we're in a in a... In a in a wonderful place. We're super comfortable talking football. But here we're talking kind of our language and journalism and how we cover sports and how we cover people and how we cover the world. And We've got a special guest in, in Soledad O'Brien, who I know you and I both respect so Damn much Morris. for everything she's done. I mean, just yes. what she's done in this business. And this is an actual treat, I, not just for us, but for the listeners, because I think this is something... But they're going to hear a perspective that we can't necessarily deliver.
4: Yeah, she's uh, she's just incredible, Steve. I mean, um, and and it goes beyond just gender. You know, I know people want to hold her up, you know, as as um, this voice for women in the industry and whatnot. But I take inspiration from some of the things she's done. Just one as a journalist, two as a business person to say I'm going to go out and start my own company and understand the power of owning whatever it is, owning your brand. Um, that's, a, that's a message for all of us, regardless of gender, regardless of age. Um, you know, so many times in this business, we complain about things that are going on. Well, one way you can change it is by owning your message, owning your company, owning your brand. And so to see her do what she has done, to me, um, she, again, she's inspirational. She
3: is fearlessly accountable. and And that's that's what you know i think we both admire her so much not only she accountable for her own actions but the way she holds other people accountable and jim when we started out this podcast we promised our listeners it's not just going to be about football it's going to be about social issues it's going to be about journalism it's going to be about the real world and so with that we're going to give us we're going to deliver i should say an ambassador to all of those ladies and gentlemen soledad o'brien talk sports, we talk everything. And our guest today, uh, one of the most acclaimed journalists that we have in America and the world, Ms. Soledad O'Brien, who joins us. We're going to cover a whole lot of ground here. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for talking with me. And by the way, you can find her at Soledad O'Brien, everybody. She is the best Twitter follower. I'm not just saying this because you're here. You're my favorite.
5: No, it's true. You are it's my, my, that's not yeah. a lie. And I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. You know,
3: on, the, on that, do you like wake up with like a full magazine clip of just like,
5: I wish. Know, I but yes, stuff like <laughs> crazy. So yes, this morning I was up at two o'clock in the morning. I couldn't sleep. I look at Instagram and then I go to Twitter and um, I try to. I try. I, I really like journalism, Twitter, and a lot of people on Twitter, frankly, are journalists. I think it's a tiny percentage of people who are on Twitter, like in the country. But I do. I think sometimes the coverage is so awful and the framing is so bad, and people are so insanely obtuse about how bad they are. You know, where you, it, I think if someone sent me a note and said, "Hey, Soledad, I really, in fact, this used to happen not so much on social media when we did our Black in America series, you know, someone would say, like, I didn't like the way you did X. And sometimes I'd say, well, let me explain to you why I did it that way. But I think you have a good point. Like, that's interesting. I didn't think about that. Sometimes you argue with people on Twitter, and you're like, you are wrong, and you should fix it. It's just wrong. And they just journalists really struggle with the, I made a mistake, and I'm going to try to do better. They just really struggle with that.
4: I'm amazed that you're able to commit so much time to these <laughs> folks on Twitter. I really am. because right? I personally I it less
5: time. It doesn't pay any money. It's like a full-time no, job.
4: Exactly. I had to turn off my comments and just say, you know what? For my mental health, oh, yeah. let me let it go. But, but speaking of mental health, I just wanted to ask, how are you doing? I mean, we're in this, this pandemic state and, and whatnot. Um, you've got four teenagers. You're the CEO of your own company. Um, You've got so many things going on. Just how are you doing?
5: We're doing really well, actually. And thank God the kids are healthy. And so that's been a real blessing because we've had no medical drama in any way, shape or form. Um, uh, Work-wise, pretty early on, the company I run is very small. We have 13 full-time employees. And we decided that we'd keep everybody employed or we would do our best to, that we were not going to have layoffs. And I think that helped kind of take a lot of the stress out of the room. And again, easier to do when you have 13 employees versus 200,000 employees. But, you know, it was just a nice, like, we're going to try to figure it out. And, and I think it just, we, we started going kind of back to our values. Like, what are we here for? What are we doing? Why are we here anyway? Why are we doing this? We all could be doing something else. What are we, what are we doing? What do we want to do? What do we want to achieve? And what do we believe? And what are the stories we think are important? And don't, we still think they're important. And so we kind of doubled down in what we had been doing and social justice mostly and a lot of often race and gender related stories. And it ended up being, you know, I think for the first couple months, we were freaking out because all of our, like everybody, all of our productions were canceled. And then it just started coming back and we're busier than ever. It's insane. And so I, I do think kind of over communicating and saying like, we are going to make sure Month to month to month that everybody's working till the next month. We're going to get through the next month, going to get through the next month until we figure this out. I think that really helped. And then the last thing we did, which is such an embarrassingly stupid game that my kids would do when they were in school, um, that's a really good game to do with your staff. Uh, roses and thorns. Do you guys know the game? Oh my gosh! Do no, no, no. not. It's so cheesy. Uh, in fact, <laughs> so cheesy. And also, my daughter told me that the kids would drag it out. Basically, you have to go around and talk about what's your rose and your thorn. You could do it at the end of the day, like what was a highlight, what was a low light, or what's coming up. What's your rose for the day? What's your thorn? Right? It sounds so silly. It's awful. But what ended up happening is you'd kind of really start digging into people's psyche, right? Like what was stressing them out often wasn't a work meeting. It was, you know, uh, my my mom's going into the hospital or I'm, I'm afraid a friend of mine's having a baby, you know, and you start getting a lot of information from people. It's really a psychological check-in, right. But framed as this conversation,
4: you know, that I find you to be a role model in terms of just everything that you do from the way, from your journalism career, to the way you were intentional about your family, to, um, being the CEO of your own company to taking on critics or, or, how you view the world, those sorts of things. And also to um, powerful in terms of trying to reach back and help young girls.
5: If my kids and, were here, they'd be rolling their eyes so hard. Ours too. That's all
4: our family so you know, but, <laughs> but I wonder for you, I mean, it's so much, do you ever feel speaking of mental health, overwhelmed by it? Every day. Really? I like
5: 2020 is the year of being overwhelmed, right? I mean, it really has been a lot. We had a um, you know, we have a, a number of scholars who we're sending through Powerful, which again is a very small nonprofit. We've been able to raise, I think we've raised probably around six million dollars over the last probably 10 years we've been in business, mm-hmm. eight years. Um, so we've raised a fair amount of money. You had 30 probably 36 or 37 graduates from college. Um, we 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 didn't open up our uh, our uh, applications this year. So we have the 10 that are finishing up and then we'll, we wanted to see what was going to happen this year. Um, but I've had so many of these girls, we've buried three people's parents. Huh. Literally, we had to have a board meeting to say like, do we pay the for, for, for morgue expenses? You know, it costs about $900 to get your parents' body out of a morgue. I mean, it's just it's it's so brutal. We have scholars who are trying to figure out, you know, maybe if they sold pictures of themselves online nude, they could make some money. Like that's where they are. It's it's brutal. It's you're it's serious so, about that. Oh, I am so not. It's a hundred percent serious. It's brutal. They're so stressed. And remember, a lot of our scholars they have jobs, work study jobs, but there's no. No one's on campus, so there are no work study jobs, and and sometimes they a lot of them get their food from the local pantry food pantry. But there's no donations to the food pantry when school is shut down. Right, many schools the community kind of is is the bulk of the you know the students on campus is the bulk of the community. It's been freaking crazy. So yeah, I feel overwhelmed all the time and. Um, And very upset. And every so often, you know, you see some of these breaking news stories, whether it's the Breonna Taylor or just any random person having the crap beaten out of them Uh, or or some woman. Usually it's a black woman standing up in a McDonald's slash Costco slash Verizon store. Right. And some crazy person is screaming at them because they don't want to wear a mask. And the woman is standing there kind of defending her store and defending her her colleagues and you just think like god who there's just so many people putting it on the line and then you know we have a president who's evil and mean and nasty and petty and you know so you end up having someone who stirs the pot on that right doesn't say come on people we we can do better than this he's he's we are not better than this a lot of the time so i think it's um yeah, it's it's been very hard. I don't think white people fully understand how tough it is for um, black men and uh, black people of color generally when these these police shootings happen. Like, I think everyone's like, wow, that's bad. That's really sad. But I think for people of color, it just feels like there's a level of panic and exhaustion and sadness that you I mean look at all these players who were like sobbing as they were talking to the cameras you know and and I think very nice other people would have said like wow this is a really sad thing but I don't think they would have choked up and felt like like they're they're being attacked um so it's a really it's a crazy time so yeah I feel overwhelmed all the time I, otherwise, I wouldn't be getting up at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs>
3: <laughs> right to go to go on Twitter to tell the New York Times about themselves. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so with uh, that, we're going to circle back to some of the things that you just touched on. You know, part of which was the Collegiate Hunger, which you did this incredible documentary on. But along the lines of what you were just talking about, I mean, I know we can't factually necessarily project, but three or four years from now, when we come out of all of this, and we're not going to come out of all of this, but let's just say we've got a vaccine. We have a the the new a new president or or the same one whatever. What do you think the biggest fallout is going to be? Because you're talking about this level of distress or the economic situations people are in. But what do you think as as a society, you know, is you know this, this constant beating over the head we're having right now is is going to leave us where is going to leave us laying?
5: I think the thing that's been most disturbing to me is not even when President Trump does these big you know, rallies, right? It's the people at the rallies. It's people cheering for someone to be arrested or someone to be beaten up or, or cheering when a Supreme Court justice dies. Like just those things are disgusting. And somehow we've lost the ability to be civil as human beings. I mean, it's a very weird thing. Like there are plenty of people that I do not like. I would not cheer for them to die. I would say, wow! Well, I'm really sorry for the families, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't cheer for them to die. I would never cheer for another person to have, have the crap beaten out of them. I just wouldn't, even if I thought that person was a terrible person, I wouldn't cheer for it. So I think we're, what really has disturbed me is this, I, I feel like we've unleashed this really unpleasant, but very large, um, you know, kind of anger in this country and where people just feel like they're about themselves. Um, the, the guy who, the teenager Rittenhouse who killed two people in Kenosha, he yep. he was on TV being interviewed, and the crowd clapped for his with yes. parents being interviewed. And the crowd clapped for them, yes, as if he was a hero. And and literally, like he's, I mean, I, I don't know if his parents are going to be as excited when he literally goes off to prison to serve time for the two people that he murdered. I mean, it's insane, right? It's like crazy time. Are, so,
4: are you certain he's going to go to prison?
5: I'm not sort of anything specific. yeah right,
4: Same, right. I, I, mean, I don't
5: think that the parents are the ones who are going to determine that, certainly. Um, right. but you know, I just think we' we've unleashed this very unpleasant thing where being nasty is fine and um and and it's really led by uh, I think the president, certainly, but other people around him who allow it. Um, I just think it's sad. I've I've always been just baffled at the people who would vote for someone who's just overtly racist. Like, I'm not Jewish, but if someone were overtly anti-Semitic, I literally would say absolutely no. That's disgusting. If there was a person who was overtly uh, against men, I would just be like, well, I'm a woman, but I would never want to, you know, I would never want to support a person who who's horrible this way. And I don't know why the racism and the bigotry, which is overt. It's not even like, I think he might be. It's like overt. People just are okay with it. It's very distressing. It's very, you know, four years from now, I don't know what happens to all those people. They don't go away.
4: That's, that's my point. What do you think? Can you put the toothpaste back in the tube? Uh, I don't
5: happens? know. I don't know. And it's I been think, out
4: though. It's been out though. It I has mean,
5: been, but it's never been elevated, right? Exactly.
4: Amplified. You know, part absolutely. of the thing that's
5: so amazing when people whip out a phone to record someone who's going completely bad doing something, right? They, people spew the, the N word, right? They just, they, they don't stop. Trust me, if I'm flipping out in a Macy's one day, and someone pulls out their phone. I'll be like, "Oh, hey!" <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like I, you know, so so this idea, and then later within 24 hours, they found out who they are, and then they have this apology. That's not who I am. And these are right. They're they these are sometimes like people who run things. You know, they're yes. not some random person on the street. So I don't know. I don't. I I I'm I'm always surprised, and I think that. It's the tenor of the country has changed where that, that that's OK, that people feel like they might be given a show, actually, if they do a good enough job, right? if they're entertaining enough.
4: So that you, you have your feet in two worlds to some degree, obviously with, with real sports, dealing with sports issues, everything else, there's um, race and culture, those sorts of things. I just wonder from your perspective, how we keep hearing as it relates to sports, stick to sports stick to sports how tough is it for journalists now to be able to navigate those waters where the two seem to be intertwined and you could make the case maybe that they have always been intertwined so from your vantage point how difficult is it for a journalist now to try and do his or her job in this climate
5: i I think the climate is very unpleasant for journalists so it's a little scarier certainly i think you know both from the policing side. If you go to a protest, I can't tell you I've ever been to a protest that I've covered where I was worried that the police would sort of not respect the fact that I had journalists or press on my back. And sometimes you would get shoved around in this and that and people just didn't know, you know, like there was a little bit of chaos. Um, but now you can see pretty clearly that pe- police can see that there's press and are told that I'm press and they still kind of as the press. So that's pretty scary. Um, I don't know. I think even when people were saying years ago, you know, shut up and dribble, right. I think that, that that's been said a long time. And of course people say that when what someone is saying, who has an audience on a platform is saying something that's challenging and uncomfortable. So I don't think it means anything then. I don't think it means anything now. Um, you know, I, I just ignore that kind of stuff. I don't think it's hard for reporters I think the challenges that reporters are having right now are not around the fact that policing is really challenging or even that audiences and people are mad at reporters and sometimes very justifiably. I think it's that there's a very big deadline. They don't know how to cover some of these issues. They just don't. I mean, when we did our first Latino in America doc, I remember it's around the table with like 15 other people, two Latinos, me and my producer Rose and we had a debate about, you know, are Puerto Ricans Americans? And it would matter because 48 million, if you didn't count Puerto Ricans, 51, if you did. And I was like, we can just skip to Googling this. Like, this is a this is not a debate. Like, why, this does not qualify as debate topic. This is just and you realize, right, that the terrifying part is this is the team that's going to try to do a groundbreaking documentary about Latinos. And they can't, we can't even figure out this thing that I promise you, just go Google it. It'll come up really fast and we can move <laughs> on. And. You know, and so I think for a long time, you have like a lot of reporters just don't have a fluency in some of these conversations. And I think we see it often in protests. Right. We very rarely do a sense of whose point of view am I assuming? Why do we assume what this person tells me is true? Why don't we just frame it as, you know, this person has been a lawyer before or maybe we don't believe them or here's at least their vested interest in it. And I think the struggle that journalists are having is is in that. Really, more than those other things that make the atmosphere fraught. Years ago, we did when we did our first Black in America doc series, we divided it up. Two first two hours were about the death, the assassination of Dr. King. Then we did the next two hours about black men and the next two about black women and children. It was literally just the most divided that way for no reason at all. Hmm. And the number of people who said to me, like, what an inappropriate way to divide up your documentary. And I was like, oh, my God, you're so right. Like, ugh. and since that moment, I have never just off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just chop it that way. It doesn't really matter. I, I realized the statement I was making without intending some kind of a statement. It was so inappropriate. It just was wrong. And, it, and more than being wrong. It's not what I was trying to say. So, you know, and I just sometimes don't think that journalists say, you know, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Like, wow. You're right. Quote tweeting someone who's lying. Maybe I am elevating a lie. Hmm. Maybe I shouldn't do that. You just don't get that.
3: Well, let me tell you this, though, because Jim and I, you know, we were in the newspaper game for a long time. You know, I worked at The Washington Post. Jim was in San Diego. Sometimes as a journalist, you may have the right. Attack, but your editors who are saying just lay it out this way or just lay it out that way, it could be the producers or whatever, and maybe that's what some of the journalists are facing today when they're when they're trying to cover a protest that athletes are involved in or athletes are speaking out. Is it all on the journalist or is it all on some of the people making the decision to often try to skew the ethics of journalism or, or whatever they may be?
5: Probably a little bit of both. I mean, I've never worked in a newspaper newsroom, so I don't understand that power structure as well. I, I can promise you that any anchor, if there was a chyron that was written – to frame a story and it was not right, literally you take your earpiece out and like, that would be a huge problem for that, but it would never happen again. You know, there's no sense of like, yeah, I don't run the Chirons, I guess someone else just framed it that way. It just doesn't work that way in TV. Um, so I, I don't know, but it, isn't it around a conversation? Like whose point of view are we going to go for? I, I think all the stuff about Kaepernick is a really great example, right? This idea of like how black people feel about Kaepernick kneeling, how white people feel about Kaepernick kneeling, how certain white people feel about it. They're all very different. And and a story has been allowed to kind of morph and get, you know, if I were to walk down the street to talk to my neighbors, and say, what do you think of Colin Kaepernick? And they were white, they'd say, I can't believe that he has offended and insulted the military, right? I mean, that's the this narrative that has come out that many reporters have actually helped you know, fan the flames of that. So I get that that's a point of view, but there are other points of view um, that could be elevated. So often I think editors, sure, If you don't have people around the table, right? If you're gonna do a doc on a whole bunch of Latinos, but you actually don't know enough to know that yes, Puerto Ricans are Americans, (laughs) you know, maybe you're gonna have some blind spots in some other ways, and maybe you need some other people around the table who are gonna say, Let's think about it this way, just for a moment. You know, what if the police are wrong? Yep. What if this lady is lying? What if, right, as so many times now, if Amy Cooper dog lady in central park we would have believed her right it would have been you know traumatized woman you know except there's video so now we could say well, wait a minute um i don't know i find it all very distressing and stressful and i think for people of color it's really um i think it's really difficult to realize how much your neighbors hate you,
4: huh. you wow. know, So that, wow that is strong you said something in your book the Next Big Story, My Journey Through the Land of Possibilities, which I recommend everyone read. And you said in relationship to covering stories, I feel like I'm always aiming for good enough because there is no time for being particularly thoughtful.
5: Yeah, that's Michael. really good. Yeah. I mean, some to me, is life, right? I mean, I have four kids. It, it, CNN was a place where you had deadlines constantly. Precisely. You, know, you tried to be. You tried to make sure you were answering the questions, but it was very hard. I'm sure all of that for people who are working today, it's even harder. You know, the news cycle is so fast and even good enough for, you know, like a parent. You know, like some days I think we're going to do tater tots in the air fryer, which is the greatest invention known to mankind (laughs) and also chicken fingers because I don't cook. And that's like that's what we're doing. And we're going to be fine with it. I remember with my mother-in-law when she found out. I said, yeah, I think Brad's just going to have uh, cereal for dinner. She was just like, <laughs> Oh, no. he's a grown man. If he wants a burger, he can make himself a burger. Come on.
4: There you go. But, but how do you deal with that in, in today's culture and that those demands for immediacy?
5: You yeah. know, I think sometimes you have to couch things carefully, right? Tell people, often telling people what we don't know is a really good trick. Listen, here's a whole slew of stuff. And also giving context. One of my, probably the thing I type the most is context, right, which is on Twitter. I think media, to me, you don't have to be perfect, but you just have to give context. There are some reporters who do a really good job. The younger ones do, because they really understand social media. So they often frame things like fact check right there, or note, this is this bill was signed by President Obama, <laughs> you know, things like that.
4: Why do you think media outlets are doing this so? knowingly putting on people who tell lies or who are lying and it's easy it's easy to prove that they are actually lying why are media outlets doing this
5: i think it's a it's an effort to have a sense of balance right like there's this and there's this uh somehow objectivity has morphed into, well, we'll hear from the left and the right or we'll hear from this person and this person. And it really honestly is just it's a real laziness. Absolutely, I, I can tell you how easy and you guys know this, right, because we've all done these interviews. Uh, senator Jones, Senator Smith says you are a big fat liar. How do you respond? And the senator says, oh, well, I'm a liar. He's a liar. Senator Smith, you just heard Senator Jones there. He says, no, it's you, in fact, who are the liar. He also says you're a jerk. How do you respond, right? And by the way, at, the, at a couple of those, and you're like, listen, gentlemen, we're out of time. Thank you. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much. It's so easy. You don't have to do any prep. You don't have to understand what's factual, that you don't need to learn anything to push back on. You use the two of them to push back on each other, but you add no value. You don't help your listeners or your readers. You you you. You don't do what I think is the mission of journalism, right? To inform people accurately. You should not elevate lies just because your goal is to inform people accurately, hold people accountable. So, you know, I think how much of it is based on the
4: bottom line, because I feel that in journalism now we've gotten away from providing people with information to make quality decisions that that affect their lives and whatnot. To now we have to answer to our shareholders. Yeah, I
5: think there's a lot on the bottom line in terms of just ease, right? If you book at CNN, for example, everybody who was a contributor back in the day when I was there, and I've been gone for a long time, let's say they were making a $100,000 a year, right? Well, guess what? You can book a lot of people, you could actually stay on the air for 24 hours just using those same people booked over and over and over again. And I promise you, that's already your sunk cost once you've actually hired them. So you don't have to go out in the field. You don't have to report. It's so expensive to be in the field. It's so expensive to shoot every single day. Those That stuff is so expensive. It's just cheaper to get your panel. And so you started seeing the nine-person panel, which is a ridiculous number of people. Like It's craziness. So I think it is just cheap and it's easy. But I think ease is what really drives it. And I think it gives you a sense of there's balance. Well, we heard from them and we heard from them. And that's good enough versus but what what's actually true? What, what, why would we want to hear from, you know, Rick Santorum on climate change? He literally knows nothing. Zero. Why? Why bother?
3: But but they'll bring them on. And a lot of these people are on every day. So now they're rehearsed in practice, knowing what that that news agency wants them to say, a perspective to take. And, and this is where I want to get to you, because you call. These media institutions out on this repeatedly, be it the New York Times, be it CNN, be it individuals, uh, you know, at at any media institution. Why do you feel the need to be responsible doing that? Because honestly, there aren't many of you out there trying to hold journalists and journalistic institutions accountable.
5: You know, I find it very, I just find hypocrisy really annoying. And so that's part of it. I also really believe there's a value in naming things. I don't think it's okay to say, well, media does this and media doesn't. Media does not do those things. And New York Times, specifically, this particular reporter does this particular thing. And I think it's a good way to kind of take it and hold it up as an example Versus just being mad at the media. I love the media. I love working in media. I love storytelling. I love reporting. I've done some really great reports. I've won a bunch of awards. I've done some very mediocre reports that were like, "Mm, those are never going to win anything. And that's been my career. But I really enjoy media. I just wish those reporters because they have no self-reflection in a way I feel like you have to shame them a little bit and name them and point out the chunk and point out the quote and point out where they're wrong um and listen they're welcome to agree with me or disagree with me if they want to but otherwise how do we track who's really dropping the ball
4: is it more exhausting or cathartic to do
5: a it? Bit of both a little bit of both You know, I think it's exhausting, certainly, and there are just some days that I'm like, "Yep, just gonna post pictures of my puppy. That's it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's
5: That's all I can do." Uh, But you know, it's also cathartic. I think it's important. I often think about young journalists. You know, and and uh, because I do think there's a, I think when you stand up against a thing it's not just standing up for yourself, right? It doesn't really matter to me what the New York, I, I'm a double subscriber to the New York Times. I get the New York Times to my office, even though our office is closed, I get the New York Times at home. So it's not going to change whether or not I'm subscribing to the New York Times. But I do think it's important that people realize like someone was willing to call out some of this bullshit. I just think that's important. And I think that's important in the real world. You know, my mom was actually really good at kind of like standing up for stuff and being like, this is not okay. And I don't, if anybody wants to join me, great. But if not, also fine. Like, I'm just going to be the one who makes it clear this stuff is not OK. And I, I do think that that's really important. I, I've had friends who said to me, you know, I really like being booked on Meet the Press. I just don't want to say anything against Chuck Todd because I really enjoy that platform. Mm. Okay, Go for it. I have zero interest in being booked on Meet the Press. I don't care. I literally do not care. I am. Completely and
3: you come scared. at Chuck Todd. Well, he's Thank just you uh, should. And he's
5: you bad. should. And, 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 right, I mean, honestly. And you he's should. So, he's so bad. He's really, he's really, a, he's he's a struggle, man. He's just, and his own words. I mean, there's so many great articles, actually, that have been written about just his really flawed sense of what his job is. It's sad, actually.
4: You know, Soledad, I see you stand up to people. I, I see you stand up to people now. And I go back again. I'm going to refer to your book. And you, you tell the story of when you were 11, you and your sister were going to get, you know, this photograph made for your parents for their anniversary. And the photographer says to you, You know, I don't mean to offend you, but are you black?
5: Yeah. And, and I was 11, so I was so clueless. I was like, Huh, that doesn't sound very nice. Huh. You know, my sister was 14, she ripped into the guy. But I remember thinking, like, I honestly, I I think even as we were leaving the store, I wasn't exactly sure. Like, I knew we obviously can't be here, but I, I couldn't have really articulated exactly what was wrong because he was so lovely about it. Right. Oh, forgive me if I'm, <laughs> forgive me if I'm offending you Are you black. And you're like, oh, well, you're not offending. I, what? Let me. <laughs> I <don't know." laughs> yeah, I think that you do. My sister was very good at that. My mom was very good at that. You no, know, they were very do- much like we're out. We're good. We're done.
4: But you made a point in there where you said, and you likened it to to dodgeball, and you said in order to keep moving forward, you dodge it and you you move forward. But when we see you today, you now stand up against these things. And I'm wondering at what point did you get comfortable enough or confident enough, whichever it may be, to say, you know what, I'm not gonna play dodgeball here. I'm now going to stand up and address it. So when that student at your, your high school says something offensive to you and you just move past it as you did, soledad today would never just move past it she would address it
5: no sometimes i would i I actually tell people a lot like you can't you can't take on everything or you're really you'll you'll find yourself mired in a swamp and you won't get anything done right so for me i think i kind of pick and choose those things i'm gonna take on i often tell the story of a guy i worked with when i was in boston his name was john i won't tell you his last name um but (laughs) i know you'll know. Yeah, I know. I really oh, am. I, I should tell him last name, but I won't. <laughs> but anyway, John used to um, I did the morning show that came on before the Today Show. So seven oh oh Today show came on and I would run to the bathroom to get my headset, run into the morning meeting. And almost every time John would say, oh, Soledad's running on colored people time. Oh, CP time. I you mean, know, I'm just so it was like 705 meeting starting at seven. And I would get so mad. I was furious. I would see that I literally would go home and then think of like, the next time he says this, what I'm going to say is this. And then if he does this, I'm going to do this. And, and then one day I got a promotion and I left that station, went to NBC News. I've never seen him again. In the 31 years I've been in TV, I've never come across John again, ever. I literally have no idea where he is. And I often tell young people like, wow, I wish I could have some of that time back. What a waste of my time, right? To sit here and strategize about my cutting comment because John said this and then I was going to say, you know, like, why? You know what? Put your head down, learn some that you don't know and focus on growing. Who wants to work with you? Are they doing something interesting? Go work with that person. Don't spend your time worrying about what this guy said, his stupid little comments. And, and so I try to stay out of those things and then argue on the bigger things. But I do believe and you get to a certain level and you have a seat around the table, like if you're not going to use your voice, then why bother to get the seat around the table? I mean, really, like what's the point of it? You know? And I think I would love to be in meetings where I could comment on, you know, the color of the drapes. And really, I think we need new carpeting, but every so often you end up having these weird conversations about race. And you're like, I got to say a thing because no one else is going to say it. And part of the reason I'm here here is you guys have brought me in to be on this board because I say those things that everybody feels like they might not want to say, I'm going to say it. And I always feel like if if there comes a time where they don't want my voice, then that's okay. I'm 54 years old. I've done a lot of stuff. I'm happy to take on more projects, take on fewer projects. But if you're there, part of your job is to like hold people accountable.
4: So what is the advice that you give to young journalists who are coming in who have to deal with some of these things, but are afraid to speak up because they're just starting out and they don't have, they should be.
5: Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is people also don't want to hear from the younger journalists, right? You need to have some credibility and you need to have some skills and you're actually there to learn how to do the job. Right. So I, I always categorize it if it's annoying then sometimes you do keep your mouth shut and you just keep an eye. Oh, that person, he is not my friend. This person over here, he is not a friend. Oh, this person over here, he actually wants me to help me get ahead and do this. Like, that's how you should be navigating your career and not wasting your time and your energy on those people who are going to be mean and not helpful to you. But then there are times when things cross into another level, right, where it's actually hugely problematic and you have to decide, Who in the senior staff do I go to to talk to? And even then, I would say if you're younger, it's not always your place to say in the middle of a meeting, I'd like to bring up this topic. Sometimes, you know, you have to talk to other people and have them understand and then they can advocate for you. And they might say, listen, this is an HR issue. Or they might say this is a legal issue. Or they might say, you know what? You're right. I now notice that this person always cuts off the women in these meetings. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. And the next time he does it, I, as a senior person, I'm going to say, Bill, you always cut off the women when they're talking, let her finish. Right. And sometimes that solves the dilemma. It's hard. I think when you're new and young to be arguing and advocating, because you're really there to learn the job and you won't get the credibility till you've been there a while and know the job. The reason I can critique people is I've done a lot, I've written a ton. I've done a zillion broadcasts. Like I know I know what they're dealing with. I understand it. And I don't think if I I think if I didn't have that credibility, my criticisms and my critiques wouldn't be as pointed or as powerful because I, I know I, I've done that job. I do that job.
3: Right. And look, I, I want you know, you, you brought up uh, since you brought up, you know, the women. Hey, you're always cutting off women. We see it from the national leadership to sports, whatever, especially in the media, when we see the president or his press secretary come at Yamiche Alcindor or April Ryan, and then you know we see people come at Maria Taylor from ESPN for what she's wearing or Jamel Hill or Kerry Champion, it seems like more than ever that especially women of color are targets. Yeah, the president will come after Jim Acosta, but he won't necessarily come at a woman reporter for CNN who is not black or is, is white.
5: Yeah, so no, it's, it's social different. media generally, not even just the president, although he definitely seems to have an issue on that front. Social media in general, it's just people are really, I mean, really, really vicious uh, to women of color. Um, I do think it's one of those, if you're going to be on social media, you have to recognize that. And uh, and if you can't take it, you shouldn't be on social media. Because if it's going to suck you under, and it, it, it's it's often just so mean and vicious and horrific, like I can't even articulate it. It's like, you know, then you have to decide that I don't want to be part of this conversation because I don't think there's a short-term fix for it. I don't, I don't think so. I'm always surprised at how horrific people are, men to women of color. And that's, you know, the data shows it that, that pretty consistently. Um, so I think for people who can't, who really, if it sends you into a personal tailspin, you shouldn't be on social media because that's, no one's going to, no one's going to fix it.
4: Has there ever been a comment, and I don't I'm, I don't know that it would be social media, but something that was said to you that that it did hurt you because we see you're so confident um, and strong. And I, as as I was reading your book and I saw the the passage about the Reverend Jackson situation where you're literally seated next to him and he's complaining that there are no persons of color as anchors at CNN and then taps you literally on your skin and yeah, says. Well, you're right there.
5: Which is yeah. also weird. Like, who? Don't touch me. <laughs> um, like, who grabs someone's back of their hand? Like, ew, if I did that to you guys, you'd be freaked out if I leaned over and grabbed this part of your hand. That's weird. Uh, you know, I will say on social media generally, um, it does not bother me. Uh, when you have four children, you get a whole slew of like, you're the worst mother ever. You're t- like, you kind of get very, you know, It just doesn't bother you. Um, I do think when people tell me I have a factual error, like that sends me into an absolute tails, but I hate to have factual errors in anything. In fact, the person who gave me the feedback about how we divided up the doc series, that has stayed with me forever because they were right. You know, and I did it so without thinking and and divided a community into black men and women and children. Dumb as so I, I'm still mad about that. That conversation took place like 12 years ago. So that kind of stuff really sticks with me and makes me mad. But I, I doesn't the, the, the criticism says I, I just don't take social media very seriously. So it doesn't it doesn't really um, it doesn't really stick with me. One woman once wrote a review of something I did and called me a skinny and I was like, oh. Skinny <laughs> Then he liked it. <laughs> I was like who writes a review calling someone that, but so kind of like I just don't take that stuff seriously. It doesn't. um I think I know too much of how the sausage is made. That um, just doesn't really bother me very much.
3: No, but okay. So so again, we followed so much of your career because it's been been there for so much of us to see, and I'd love for you to kind of you know talk about maybe one of the some of the things you've done that you've been just so exceptionally proud of because. You know the thing that I mean—I swear to God—it sticks out with me more than almost anything journalistic I've ever seen was your interview of convicted Atlanta child murderer Wayne Williams, where he is
5: trying—wasn't it?
3: He is—he is trying to trick you and lead you down the primrose path, and you weren't having it. And then you hit him with some piece of information.
5: Yeah, that was nobody.
3: Nobody had.
5: He's so interesting too, because you know a lot of that case hinges on the fact that the the killer would have to be able to lift a body up onto a four plus foot high wall, which is, I mean, probably you guys could do it, but I sure as heck couldn't lift someone dead weight up, literally dead weight up onto a wall and then push them into the river. Right? Like that's actually a a very hard thing to do. And he's a small guy. He's about five foot eight. I probably weigh 20 pounds less than him. Like he's a little dude. Um, So it was very interesting to have this conversation with him because the way his, and you could see why he became a suspect, Pretty quickly, um, just the way he talks about his fantasies around, you know, being part of the CIA, but he can't talk about it. Even then, he was like, "I can't really talk about it." Like, dude, you're you're incarcerated. You are not part of the CIA. He's got this whole fantasy life going. It was a really, really good interview, and I, I, I do. I had there were so many interviews in in the documentaries that I really enjoyed because you could. Let them breathe a little bit. You didn't have this four minute window where it's like, Senator, you know, here are the four questions and we're going to have to thank you and go. And some of those were, were good, too. But I really liked uh, in the documentaries, we did a documentary, uh, Latino in America, where I interviewed a guy. His name was Jim Miller, white guy, and he was hanging up the American flag. He was a Marine, so he hung up the Marine Corps flag. And he also hung up the Confederate flag on his house every day. And he was trying to run Latinos out of Shenandoah, uh, Pennsylvania, where he lived. Shenandoah is a, a mile square. It's very tiny. And so I said to him, so you obviously are very hostile to Latinos. Like, tell me why. And he said, because they steal our jobs. I was like, wow, that's terrible. So tell me which job you lost. He's like, oh, I didn't lose a job. I'm like, oh, oh, well, you said they steal your jobs. Then obviously you have a close friend whose job was stolen. Tell me about that. He's completely perplexed. I don't have a friend whose jobs. I said, "So, so, whose jobs are we talking about protecting?" And he looks at me, American flag, Marine Corps flag, Confederate flag, and he says, "The blacks. I'm here to protect the blacks." <laughs> oh my, <laughs> my god!
4: Okay. <laughs>
5: <laughs> and it was just a great moment because I mean, he genuinely meant everything he was saying, but you 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 just are able to capture. Um, kind of the hypocrisy. And, and I love that in documentary.
4: Um, Soledad, when when you were removed as anchor on America Morning, and that's when it appears, based on my research, you started doing more long form journalism. Yeah,
5: yep. Yeah.
4: And the thing that, that, that at least I find as I get older, as you get older, you start to find where your real purpose is and what your passion is. And I wonder if that was the moment Perhaps that you realized what your real calling was, because I, I believe you had said at that point it was always just you were focused on climbing the ranks in journalism. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you were talking about truly telling stories for those who didn't have a voice. And was that when you found your voice or your purpose, your passion?
5: I think I, I think I've always been very good at being flexible in situations. So when someone says, and, and it's so embarrassing to get fired from anchoring a show, because what happens is you read it in the New York Times, like literally, you're like, I, I think we've been fired. And then you have to anchor the show for another two weeks, right? Because then your agent calls and it gets very met. Like it's, it's, it's so embarrassing. It took me off that show and my co-anchor too. And I was assigned immediately, we we're both signed to new things. And I remember Dick Parsons called me and said, so are you happy with this new assignment? he had not been involved in my firing and I said, yeah, I think so. Like I think it see, it feels like it could be interesting. It feels like there's something to work with. And I've always been that person, like literally whatever it is, I'm like, yeah, you know, I think there's a thing I can make this work. And it ended up being a uh, really, it's the reason I was able to start a company later because I got some skills that I would not have had if I had just continued anchoring. So I, it was an amazing blessing but I think really figuring out all that stuff was around Hurricane Katrina. I remember getting into the storm and thinking like, we're covering this like a storm and this is not a story of a storm. This is a story of a bunch of people got screwed because nobody cared about them. And sure, elements of a storm, but people, human beings are, are being plucked off of roofs. I mean, it was so crazy. There was like dead body. I mean, New Orleans, right. It's not like this little you know podunk town that no one could get to. Right. It was so crazy. And there were just bodies lying in places. I mean, I do a live shot. There'd be a body in the middle of the, what they call the the neutral zone in front of the convention center. You'd go back two days later, the body would still be there. It's insane. Um, it was just so insane. And so I think that for me was really the moment of like, oh, there is an opportunity to make sure that I'm framing the story the way that I see it and I can argue with other people. There was a guy, what was his name? Aaron Brown at CNN. He did the evening show and I was doing the morning show and he, he started calling them the night, the storm hit, uh, um, refugees, the refugees from yes. And my yes. executive producer who's my best friend also, uh, was from new orleans and she's like they're not refugees they we are all walking around with the merriam webster dictionary like, you know? and i was like oh we are killing this right now on my show like this is now dead they are evacuees and that's what we're going to call them and we were literally able to completely shift the entire narrative
4: and that was her hometown right that was ken's hometown
5: it made no sense yeah exactly so it made no sense but but the idea of like Aaron Brown framing it this way. And I was able to say, no, 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 no. This is what this is over here. We like literally changed that. And there's a tremendous power in that. And so I think that's when I began to connect this idea of you, that it matters, right? It actually matters that Kim and I are there with our Merriam-Webster dictionary and fighting for it and crossing it out of scripts and reading it the way we want it. Because if we're not there, then it gets framed in a way that's wrong. And again, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, right? If you only have one point of view and you don't have other voices saying, well, wait a minute, actually, I think this framing is wrong. I I don't know that we should only use the police as our source. I don't know that we should only take, you know, what this person is saying about Colin Kaepernick as our only source. Like maybe we should think about the context of this. If you don't have that, then I think you really aren't doing a good job reporting
4: You know, it was after Katrina that you and your husband started Powerful. And my understanding is that Katrina was sort of um, a catalyst to you guys creating this foundation. What was it about Katrina that led you guys to create Powerful? You'd
5: meet so many great young women who had just nothing. I mean, literally, we had a scholar from UCLA who was at UCLA who was $500 $500 short per semester. She needed $2,000 and she did not have a single person in her world to ask for $2,000. And and so many of the, you know, the girls, most of them, we started in New Orleans and we expanded that they just had, whether if they needed $500 or $1,000 or a million five, right? Like it was all the same. It just, there was nobody to ask. There was no way to get, access to that money. It's so crazy. And so I think we began to realize, like, well, we could pay for that. I mean, I can give you $500 a semester. I think I can pull that off. And so we would do that. And and she ended up graduating, was her house speaker at UCLA. She went on to to go to law school, which we helped pay for. And now she works uh, as a corporate lawyer doing a lot of pro bono work. I mean, amazing young woman. Um, So we had so many stories. Like, it was just a very specific amount of money. You're like for $6,000, like this is $6,000 is what's going to keep you from doing something. It's not $10 million where I'd be like, I'm out, I can't help you. But $6,000, come on, we can raise $6,000 and get this, this girl through Spellman. we can do it. And, and so I think it just felt very solvable. And, and there, and these young women were so talented and they were, and they were great. They were just really, and, and, and college would allow them a career. Otherwise they were going to go work at IHOP or wherever they were working in college. And it just seemed unfair to me. I Mm -hmm. always, I was a very middle-class kid. I grew up in Long Island. You know, one thing my parents could do was they could pay for our college. We took out some loans. We, you know, I got some scholarships, but there was never a sense of like, we'll see about next semester. We just don't know. It was always, if you do your part, you know, we will make sure by cobbling together loans and scholarships, we'll make sure that, you know, that you're going to go to college. It was always very boring, right? There was no dr- drama around finances. And we tried to create that for our scholars. Like we will commit that you will go to and through college. Now you have to do your part and you have to do the work, but we'll give you the financial stability and support.
4: How many boxes of Kleenex do you go through when you hear these stories um, of so these girls great. after? They're so
5: they're so great. I was actually doing an event the other day and I started crying in the middle because, um, they asked me, you know, what I would tell the girls. And I said, I wish that they would understand that all these things that are such struggles, they actually make them stronger. It's really hard to, to look back and say, well, I was able to figure out how to navigate a food pantry. I guess that makes me stronger in some way, right? It just feels to them like it's shameful. It's embarrassing. It's terrible. It's awful. It's traumatic. Um, But there are ways in which they're so strong, right? Shoot, if you can do that, you can really do so much more. They've had experiences, sometimes really bad ones, that their their eventual work colleagues will not have had, you know? And so I try to show them all the time, like, it's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's just who you are. And it's made you a great, strong person. And you can leverage off of that, right? So then when work sucks, or you have a boss you don't like, or a project goes south, hey, you've had other things happen. Lean on that. And leverage it into figuring it out i just they just don't it's just a hard thing to get them to realize that you know it really is hard and i wish i wish that i could get them to do that
4: how how can we as men how can we as men be allies in this
5: such a great question so um so my husband uh was asking me something like this not too long ago and he you know, he said, I I sometimes get on these mantles, like all guy panel. And he's like, I, I don't want to, but I'm not running the panel. Like I just show up. And then and I said, so you guys have this tremendous opportunity like Mariah Carey in the Divas, right? You know, she doesn't say yes until she knows like who else is going to be in the Divas. Mariah's not going to go just because someone's invited her. She's like, who am I with? And I think you have this opportunity right on every project. OK, well, you know, who, who are we doing this with? As I said to my husband, say, I would love to do this panel. I'm going to hold the date in my calendar. I'm going to need a young woman of color who's in banking also to be on this panel. Also, I'd like a guy maybe who's had like 10 or 15 years experience also on this panel. If you can't find them, no problem, but I won't be on it. Right? And all of a sudden you become you know, the 600 pound gorilla in terms of like, here's what we're going to need to make sure that this is the kind of panel I would like to be on. And I think for you guys, any project that comes your way, you could say, listen, it's really important to me, diversity. So make sure that X, Y, and Z, if that's important to you. Right. And then, and then when someone says, Oh, we couldn't, you're like, Oh, okay, well I'll give you another week to figure it out. But you know, I, I need to be very clear. This is what I require. This is what I require. And usually I think people actually are happy to do the right thing. If they're pushed to do the right thing, they might not do it naturally on their own. But in my experience, everybody, you know, runs around and tries to find that person for the panel. They don't want to do a mantle. They just didn't think about it. You know, so now someone has said, I'm not going to do your panel if you don't fix it for me. And I, I think there's just so many ways in which men can weigh in on these kinds of things and say, hey, I think it's really important that half of our PAs are women. So, you know, otherwise I'm going to have a really hard time supporting this project. You know, but uh, go for it. Come back to me. And then you go back and say, you know what? I see we've got a couple of people. I think half is a really good number. So uh, I'm going to give you another couple of weeks to, f- you know, half is what I'd like to see, right? It's, it's just holding people
3: accountable to what they can do. I mean, and, that, and that's so important. And, you know, fortunately for for Jim and I, like we understand that. That's why we have this podcast As two black men in a sports world working for an NFL media agency to be able to have this. We pushed for this. We were laughed out of a room two years ago when he first proposed this. And so now we're here. So we, we could go on for so much longer, but we, we've been here for a while, Soledad. Um, we're just so flattered. Please follow her at, at Soledad O'Brien. On Twitter, IG, you will be entertained. It is the best. We'll while. not regret it.
5: I used to curse a lot, but I've tried really hard for the last while to not curse. I curse.
3: Sometimes yeah. Sometimes you have to do it. We, we um, were like that, too. Sometimes, try, you know, you, <laughs> you have to let it go. But thank you so much. This, this has time. been absolutely spectacular. And this is what Thanks we try to bring, not just not just sports and everything else, but high, highbrow, high IQ stuff. And you really thank I, you so I, much. Thank honor. You. Thanks for having me. You're amazing. Well, Jim, she did not disappoint. Uh, Soledad delivered the goods from the roses and thorns analogy, which is something I'm going to take with me every day in my life, because sometimes I can be very thorny (laughs) and get real ugly um, and try to find some positive stuff. Jim, when you asked her, about what can men do to be allies. I thought her response was brilliant and something, if I ever thought about it, was a glancing blow.
4: Oh, no question, Steve. I mean, as it's, it's, it's someone who has, both of my children are, are um, female, I have two daughters and they're grown now, but when they were growing up, I would always try and stop for a minute and say, how can I be an ally to them? Um, how do I advocate for them? How do I help them to become to grow up to be strong individuals? And so whenever I have someone like Soledad or there is an issue that I feel strongly about, um, I always try and ask that question of how can I be an ally? and in this case, how can men be an ally? And sure enough, as you say, she delivered the good, so it is definitely something that I will think about going forward when I'm in a situation or asked to do certain things about um, who all is involved and how do I get more people, um, a diverse crew around to make sure that everyone is getting those opportunities. She's she's just phenomenal, man. And I say, uh, you know, from a journalistic standpoint, I I I'm an unabashed fanboy when it comes to Soledad.
3: Remember, she's at Soledad O'Brien. And on that note, Jim is at, at Jim Trotter underscore NFL on Twitter. I'm at White89 on Twitter. And, and again, Jim, let's just emphasize one more time. We are trying to do with this podcast. It is more than just your ev- everyday average scratch and sniff football conversation.
4: Yeah, Steve. So what I would say to people out there who are listening is please um, subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, leave ratings because we're trying to give you more of what you're searching for. And um, my old school crew will remember that, a little bit of Parliament Funkadelic. So uh, let us know what you're looking for so we can give it to you. And we appreciate you know all the
3: support. And props to Soledad O'Brien for making our editors hit that beep button over <laughs> and over. Jim, we've got to make a better habit of making him work that hard. All right. For Jim Trotter, uh, come on,
4: Steve. Come on, Steve. We don't want to do that's that. That's not who him. we are.
3: That's not who we are. All right. But for Jim Trotter, Thomas Warren, and we're going to shout out, I guess, the memory, if you want to call it. He's not dead, but the legacy of Arjuna Ramgopal, who left us after helping us launch this show for bigger and better things. I am Steve Weitz with the Hud on Flow podcast.
0: We are out.